0: Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Hopefully, your spring operations are winding down at this point, but we've certainly had our struggles, whether it's too much rain, too little rain, or perhaps both as we are. (laughs) Dealing with cresting issues in part of Madison County. Today we have with us Dr. Alyssa Esman. She is a weed specialist and has recently received an offer with Ohio State that we're going to talk about here. But Alyssa, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us uh, the roles that you've been in a little bit in the past and where you'll be joining us in the future? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Like you said, my
1: name is Alyssa Essman. I've been at Ohio State for a minute. So I started uh, working with Dr. Mark Lauks actually as an undergrad in the lab uh, and spent several years in that capacity, moved on to a research associate when I was working on my graduate degrees after my master's. And then recently I've been serving as a visiting assistant professor. So we've had several folks uh, kind of retired from weed science in the past couple of years and so I was filling some teaching extension and research roles uh, in that time to kind of bridge the gap. Uh, recently I did accept an offer to serve as the state extension specialist in weed science uh, and as an assistant professor. So I'm primarily extension about 70% and then uh, have a 30% research appointment. So get to continue doing herbicide efficacy trials uh, and then some cover crop trials and various things as they come up, like what, we, what we'll what we be talking about today.
2: I know we're really excited to have you joining us permanently. You bring a lot of knowledge and carry over a lot of knowledge that you gained working with Mark. So it's even better than keeping him from retiring. So Alyssa, do you want to start off with and tell us
1: what sorts of things you're going to kick off your research program with? Sure. So, One project, which uh, you might be familiar with, Elizabeth, we actually have an e-field trial this year looking at cover cropping and what that does long term. So there's a lot of literature and a lot of statements are made about the fact that if we cover crop long term, that's more beneficial for weed control than if we just do it for a year or two. But we don't actually have a lot of data to support that statement. And so we're kind of ground truthing that and looking at soils uh, that have been managed differently over time. Uh, whether that's with tillage or cover cropping or what have you, and primarily what cover cropping does to our weed populations. And so we'll be looking at the germinable seed bank. That just means any seeds that germinate that we collect from that soil uh, and kind of characterizing them based on their management. So maybe we have uh, been cover cropping for a couple of years and we have a lot of summer annuals. Maybe we've been cover cropping for a long time. And we either have less weeds or we've just shifted to maybe biennials and some simple perennials. And that's kind of what we're trying to find out is what does the long-term practice of cover cropping do to our weed populations? And then what are the implications for management?
0: I
2: think that's a really exciting project because we hear anecdotally from a lot of guys stories of how cover cropping over the years has really helped them manage weeds. And so being able to get some real data to see... What that impact is, and quantify what it is, and maybe be able to say that after a few years, we we really do see that benefit is going to be pretty exciting. So I know Alyssa's looking for folks. If if you've been cover cropping or you're just starting out and you'd like to participate, definitely get in touch with get in touch with us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or if you've never cover crop, uh, we want a range of uh, field histories. Some other projects we're working on. We have two, and both have been kind of either driven been driven by past research or uh, from grower questions. So we had a question this past year. Um, someone wanted to apply a residual in the fall, uh, which isn't something we normally recommend, but they were switching to organic. It was kind of a unique situation, and they wanted to put down a residual over top of a growing cover crop. If you look in the literature, a lot of it talks about carryover, so the herbicides that are applied in the cash crop. Uh, and what that does to the cover crop in terms of biomass and ground cover but there wasn't a lot talking about foliar applications of these residual products in the fall and so we kind of set up a study just looking at uh, a few herbicide options and some from the preliminary analysis it looks like canopy or chloramuron really dinged that rye and caused some biomass reductions And uh, coincidentally, that is the one herbicide we recommend applying in the fall because it it will last through the winter and give you some early season weed suppression. So that was kind of interesting uh, that we saw that effect from that herbicide specifically. So that has implications for um, managing cover crops and what we might be able to apply in the fall. The other study uh, is kind of building on the one we're gonna talk about today, and it's looking at cover crops and uh, the management of cover crops and what that does to our weed populations, specifically the seed bank of waterhemp. Um, so waterhemp's kind of an emerging weed in Ohio. We've seen the numbers uh, of that weed in terms of frequency rise over the past several years. Uh, it's now a pretty serious concern in several parts of the state. And so we're looking at uh, the effect of cover crops. So we have with and without the cover crop at 50 pounds per acre, we have uh, four herbicide programs, so we have pre only, pre plus post, uh, pre plus post with a residual included in that post, and then none uh, for our herbicide treatments. And then we also have two different termination timings, either early or late. And so this kind of lets us get a systems look at you know which combination of factors uh, reduce our water hemp populations, but also what are the implications for the seed bank? Maybe planting green gives us, you know, that added biomass to reduce the density or keeps the weeds small enough that they produce a lesser amount of seeds over time. And also, how does that interact uh, with the herbicide program, like uh, an overlapping residual that we typically recommend for for water
0: management? So you have really gotten into this cover crop research, which I think is great, because as you mentioned, there are so many unknowns. And as Farmers continue to have interest in adopting. This is going to help make that decision a little bit easier. Just more information overall. So let's get into what we really want to focus on today, and this is your planting green study. So you can you describe uh, what that study is and what you've looked at?
1: Sure. So this was uh, part of the work for my PhD, looking at uh, planting green, like you said. So. At that time, uh, when we started this project in 2018, it was really starting to pick up steam. We were getting a lot of questions about planting green and how to manage for that. Um, You know, the weather in spring is becoming increasingly unpredictable, and sometimes early season rains make it really hard to get into the field. And so maybe this gives us some flexibility in planting window. We know we don't have to get our cover crop killed uh, or wait for that residue uh, to kind of break down or move aside so we can have proper um, planting. So we looked at three different factors. We looked at the seeding rate of rye. Uh, We had zero to serve as our control, Uh, 45 pounds of rye, which is kind of in the range of what's typical in Ohio. Uh, Some growers prefer it lower, some prefer it higher, but we kind of went with 45 as a nice uh, median. And then we had 90 pounds breaker, which is kind of on that higher end, what might be recommended for a forage uh, seeding rate. We then had three different management programs. And so for management program, this combined the factors of termination timing and uh, herbicide input. And so this is where the planting green came in. So we had uh, rye that was terminated seven days before planting, uh, seven days after planting or 21 days after planting. And the post-applications were also varied within those programs. So where rye was terminated seven days before or after planting, we did not include a second post-application. Where rye was terminated 21 days after planting, uh, or we did include, sorry, we did include a second post-application, but where we terminated rye late, 21 days later, we omitted the second post-application to see if that extra biomass would let us get away with the one-pass post-program. Uh, We also applied saflophenicil early April in that delayed program, and this was based on uh, a program that came out of a grower near Western who suggested that if they apply that saflophenicil in early April, then uh, terminate the rye late, then they can get away with not uh, having to do do that second post. So we kind of used uh, this grower program as the basis for for our treatment design. Uh, And then we had two levels of a spring residual. So we had uh, none, again, to serve as our control and uh, flumeoxazone plus formuron ethyl, so like a Valor XLT product, to see if maybe the rye could uh, replace our spring residual herbicide application. What we found for seeding rate was kind of in line with what has been seen in other studies. And so in terms of all the different management factors, For cover crops, seeding rate tends to be one of the lowest and important, and by that I mean you can get away with a pretty low seeding rate and still get a decent level of uh, biomass and weed suppression from that. And so where we had rye at either rate, 45 or 90 pounds per acre, we saw a reduction in the density of giant ragweed and giant foxtail uh, compared to none, but we didn't actually see a difference between those two seeding rates. Uh, and this is common. We've seen this in other studies for water hemp suppression, uh, and other studies that look at planting green often have included the seeding rate component, and again have found that anywhere from about 50 to over 100, there's not a huge difference. So once we reach that threshold of about 45 to 50 pounds per acre, anything over that, we don't see too big of a difference in terms of weed suppression. Uh, But we did see a difference when we looked at our rye management program. So in general, the lowest weed density for both giant ragweed and giant foxtail was where we terminated by later. Uh, So we know that for the suppression of weeds by cover crops, there's kind of two factors that really influence how much weed suppression we get. Uh, And those are biomass, right? This is the one that's often talked about when we talk about cover crops, that green vegetative matter and how much of it we get above ground and also ground cover, how much the ground is covered or shaded out by our cover crop. And for these, uh, our later termination timings tended to have higher biomass and higher ground cover. And we saw an increase in weed suppression of those two species by that. And I should mention here that when we do these studies, uh, we use weed populations that are naturally present, right? And so we'll pick a field where we know we have a lot of Weed X and we rate based on what naturally comes up. There's a couple of different ways you can do it. Some other studies, uh, mostly looking at competition or other things will like hand plant or set up subplots of weeds, but we use the natural populations. And so within our trials, we had other weeds like common land exporters and mare's tail, but they weren't in high enough populations where we felt confident that we could give them a rating and compare treatments. And so for these studies, uh, we looked at mostly giant foxtail and giant ragweed. And then for our residual herbicide wasn't effective on giant ragweed, so it's not a surprise that we didn't see an effect on giant ragweed, uh, but we did see an effect on giant foxtail. And so we still needed uh that residual herbicide to reduce the density of giant foxtail uh, compared to no no residual.
0: Remind me again with the with your later your latest kill date, twenty-one days after, is that what it was at this point? Um what were your herbicide application programs for that?
1: Yeah, it was kind of a systems approach. So we had saflethiazole in early April, and then we had with or without a residual herbicide. So depending on which treatment, it got a Valor XLT or none. Uh, and then we had just our termination application. So in the first year, it was Roundup and dicamba because we had extend uh, beans. And the last year, we switched to there was some uncertainty in the dicamba label in the last year. So we switched to the 2,4 D. And so our burned down, our termination treatment was glyphosate like and 2,4 D. But that second post application. So we came back 28 days after the second post that was applied in the kind of uh, before and just after plant treatments and evaluated and compared those to the treatment where we hadn't applied that second uh, post application to see if we could get away with maybe reducing our herbicide inputs if we have enough biomass production. And by golly, if we didn't still see a difference in weed control uh, from where the post was applied uh, to where it wasn't. And so kind of the summary of this study and most cover cropping studies is that they uh, give us a lot of flexibility. So what they do is they reduce the density of weeds. So the number of weeds in our study, and we can talk about some of the Wisconsin studies that Kind of narrow that down a little bit, uh, but also the size of weeds, and what that does is it gives us more flexibility in our post window uh, if we're reducing if we're making our herbicide applications to a smaller number of weeds at a smaller size, um, not only does that buy us some time, but it uh, you know has implications for herbicide resistance if we're exposing less weeds to herbicides. yeah, and here the last
2: few years with the weather conditions we've experienced during that critical spray window time, even if it's just, you know, a handful of days can be the difference between having a huge problem and being able to to get get things under control. A question about that. So if the planting, the cover crop is suppressing the weeds, did you see any differences in your crop stand or crop yield? Did you take it to yield at the end of the season?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a good time you brought up weather because we saw different results all three years. And when talking about planting grain, I think the biggest concern is the effect on density and yield. And that makes sense because, you know, the, all that biomass is there when we're planting and uh, there's some uncertainty about what that does to that early crop growth, which we know is critical for yield. In the first year, it was 2019. If you remember the spring of 2019, we got a tremendous amount of rain. Where we had planted green, densities were great. Yield was higher than where we uh terminated either seven days before or after planting. 2020, a uh, little more fair conditions. We didn't have quite as much precipitation, and we actually saw a yield reduction where rye was terminated 21 days after planting. The last year of the study, 2021, we had voles come through, and any plot where we had a high level of rye, so those plots were where they were terminated 21 days after planting and what we called the delayed program, uh vole predation was so high we couldn't even take it to yield. And so I think that's a really good illustration of some of the variability in dealing with cover crops, both from the environmental standpoint when we have different weather conditions, uh, and also environmental in terms of uh predation from I know voles, slugs are another topic that I get questions about uh in high residue situations. So it, it depends, I guess, on the year and what the conditions look like uh, at the time of planting, but we did see a difference each year just based on what was going on in terms of weather.
2: Yeah, and that's interesting. That not surprising, but interesting. You see those results. So cover crops still present their challenges, but I think it's promising that they can help with weed control if we can figure out some of those other challenges and
1: overcome those. Yeah, and and that's kind of the benefit of using the system with soybean because soybeans are so flexible. And they can yield really well at even lower densities, uh, depending on what our planting rate is. But we can still get really good yields, even if we do have some reduction in our stand density.
0: What do you see as maybe the economic value to that? You know, if I'm debating whether to put cover crops in or not, well, I still have to do the second post application, it sounds like. So I'm not really saving any money so that cost that I have on the cover crops is still going to be there? Or maybe I'll be able to not have as intense of a spray program? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's
1: one of the biggest barriers to adoption other than management of the cover crop is the economics because we have to pay for the seed we put in, the time it takes, the labor. Um, And it, it is an additional cost with a comprehensive herbicide program, uh, unless we're talking about something like mare's tail. So for the management of mare's tail with cover crops, uh, the research has shown we can get away with replacing our fall herbicide application with cover crops. So that might be an area where we do have some sort of uh, cost savings or benefit uh, directly from the cover crop. But in terms of kind of the summer annual or spring management, um, it gets a little more tricky. And so I think the benefit there is more long-term kind of like what we talked about in the beginning uh the hope is that we're potentially delaying the development of resistance and so long term if that's the case we're going to see cost savings in that we're kind of you know doing the stewardship of herbicides or preserving this technology for longer if we have uh, more options for longer if we're delaying resistance because we're applying herbicides to less weeds based on what we know about how we develop resistance, we're reducing that selection pressure uh, by the use of these little uh, small hammers, this IPM strategy. Uh, so it's more of a an abstract long-term benefit. I don't know that there is any really short-term cost savings associated uh, with cover cropping unless it, the year is like 2019 and we see a yield bump because <laughs> our soils were drier and more fit at the time of planting.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point with the long-term cost potential savings there. I could definitely see that you're continuing to provide some um, competition for those weeds and you're reducing that pressure every year. So after several years, um, hopefully you're seeing less and less pressure each year and there may be... A year or two in there where you can do some cost savings in your pesticide program. I don't know potential there.
1: Yeah and I think there's still those are still some of the areas we have yet to research right figuring out um, maybe we have a less intense free program. Maybe we can include two actives instead of three or use a cheaper product or something but um, mm-hmm. most studies to this day have shown that we still need that comprehensive herbicide program Uh, to provide us the best weed control.
0: So let's talk about the Wisconsin studies that you mentioned. Um, They've done some stuff with planting green.
1: Yes. So they've uh, looked up planting green uh, in a similar manner. They had a multi-state study uh, that we did a year of and were involved in uh, this year, looking at different aspects, but they've done some interesting work. And part of what they found is that uh, they've done a lot of work on water hemp which uh, as i mentioned we're going to be dealing with more and i think it's interesting for them it took 7000 pounds per acre let me make sure i get this right 7000 pounds per acre to reduce the density of weeds which is a pretty decent amount of biomass usually it's around 4500 pounds per acre that's suggested for weed suppression but their study showed 7000 pounds per acre to reduce the density of weeds but it only took 700 pounds To reduce the size so the biomass reduction occurred even as low as 700 pounds which i think is pretty significant like wisconsin ohio we have kind of a short planting window if we're drilling our cover crops after harvest and then terminating them sometime early spring if we're trying to get in the fields early that's not a very long growing window and some one of the constraints of cover cropping in some of these colder regions is uh, biomass production which we know is the kind of critical value. for weed suppression, so I think that was interesting. Um, their work, and there was one other study. I can't remember where it's from, but they showed it was about fifteen hundred pounds. They still saw weed suppression benefit, and I think that's interesting to show even at some of the lower biomass levels, we're still getting some sort of benefit of going through and you know putting these additional costs uh, into our system with cover crops.
0: Did they also do a study looking at different doses?
1: Yes. So I can't recall the results of that <laughs> trial, but they did do a dose response uh with cereal rye and looking at uh, kind of like we do for herbicides. So when we evaluate resistance, we have uh, varying levels of doses, and uh, that might be where some of these numbers came from. But they did a dose response looking at really high uh, rye biomass levels compared to lower biomass levels. Uh what that does, I think that's a really interesting idea and something we could do with other species. You know, we talk a lot about rye and the value for rye, but there's other species that are used in Ohio, like then run wheat or barley or some of the legume species. Uh, and so, doing some of those those response type studies, I think, have a lot of value. So, Alyssa, I'm sure some of our listeners are
2: pretty excited hearing about the kind of research you're going to be doing. Um, Where are some places they can go to keep up with what you're working on and what you're finding out?
1: Yeah. So if they're interested in cover crops for weed management specifically, we do have a really good set of fact sheets in collaboration with the Take Action Initiative. So if you search Take Action Cover Crop Fact Sheets, uh, we have four looking at species selection, termination, uh, carryover and establishment of cover crops specifically for the management of weeds. So I encourage you to check those out. Uh, we have kind of what we call the blog or the website we can point you to, and that is u.osu.edu backslash osuweeds. So you can find us on there or on Twitter at OhioSTWeedSci.
2: I'm really excited again to have you on board and looking forward to working with you um, eFields and in other ways as well. So thanks so much for joining us today, Alyssa.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great to be here.
2: Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.
0: Hey, podcast listeners. Just a reminder to give us a like or subscribe so you know when we release new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to leave us a review also. We appreciate the comments.